What a privilege, what an honor to be in the house of the Lord. I was listening to the radio this morning as I went to pick up some bagels, hearing about in Niger, Nigeria, the slaughtering of Christians and how they cannot worship freely, and yet here we are freely. We need to count our blessings and be thankful for all that we have in Christ Jesus today. What a privilege it is to come and hear the Word of God. The most important book ever is the Bible. The most accurate history book ever is the Bible. It is the very words of God Himself. We really believe that. Let me ask you another question. Why are you here today? My parents make me. I come for my wife. I come for my husband. I've just always done it. Do we ever stop to consider that I'm here because God wants to talk to me? God has something to say. Len said it. He stole my thunder. That you divinely appointed to be here to hear God's word today. I believe that is true. I know it's true because Scripture tells me that is true. The only reason you are in your seat here today is because God said you're to be here and you're to hear what I have to say. Now, what you do with what God says is entirely up to you. It is always our prayer as we sang that song, as we, our church so often know, we know it by heart at this point, that we ask God would show himself through the preaching of his word. We are living in a day and an age in which the word of God is completely disregarded, it's being twisted, it's being changed. I so much appreciated what Alvin did in Sunday school this morning about false teachers. You can have all the passion that you want in the world and yet be lost to all of eternity. God is here to speak to us today. As we've been studying the book of Ephesians, we saw how Paul began with stating how salvation works. We saw God's planned, purchased, and preserved salvation. He then went into this incredible prayer for the church that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. They would know the greatness of God's person. They would know the person of Christ. They would know the power of Christ, the promise of Christ, the position of Christ. It's a prayer that we have for ourselves. Paul now, in chapter 2, is going to go over the same things. And yet this time, when he first did it, when he began in chapter 1, he did it from God's perspective, from the top down. Now in chapter 2, he's going to go from the bottom up, from man looking to God, from man's understanding of how salvation works. The title for today is, But for Grace. Our text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. There will be five things in which we will will help to guide us today, what we were, who God is, what God did, why God did it, and who we are now. I would ask you to stand one more time as we would pray and we would stand for the reading of God's Word. Father, we're here today because we're needy. We're here today because we're hungry. Lord, we're here today because we just might be lost, not knowing what we need. But yet your word and your word alone are the words of life. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would make your book alive to us today that we would see our Savior. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. This is what God says to us today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What we were. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus and reminds us of what we were. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead. Necros is the word. Lifeless, ineffective, useless, unable to respond. You say, but I'm not dead, I'm alive, I'm breathing. It's not physically dead, obviously, it's spiritually dead. The question is, how does one become spiritually dead? The fact is, we're born spiritually dead. We are born spiritually dead. It all began in Eden. You know, we must not discount the book of Genesis. We must not discount at all creation. As soon as man discounted creation, Darwinism, you can chart the fall of society. You can chart the downfall even of the church to much some degree. We cannot discount the authority of the Bible, what says happened in the garden. We are, remember that God told Adam that he would die if he disobeyed God's command. Remember what God said to Adam, Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now clearly we know that he didn't die physically, and God would have been completely just and correct to incinerate Adam on the spot, just as he did Nadab and Abihu when they approached him with strange fire that we learned in our evening service not too long ago. God would have been just to do it. But instead, what happened, he was spiritually separated from God. Adam's sin, therefore, has been passed down to all of humanity. In theological terms, we call it federal headship. Or covenant head, which is a much better term, by the way, the covenant head. Adam is our covenant father in the flesh. The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I like the way Ian Hamilton states it in his commentary. He states it correctly, I believe. He says, It is not our sinning that makes us sinners. Our sinning merely accentuates and makes visible our fallen state in Adam. The Bible tells us in our fallen nature, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses, parapatoma, false step, wrongdoing, an offense, sin is harmatia. You should have a good theology of sin. God is careful to define what sin is. It's a state of sinfulness as an integral element of someone's nature. It is our nature. On the back of my truck, I have a sticker from Cabela's. If you don't know what Cabela's is, it's a hunting and it's an outdoor store. And it says, Cabela's, it's in my nature. 
right? I like the hunt and I like the fish. It's in my nature. We could all put one on the back of our, tr- our, car, our trucks. We should all have trucks, but anyways, that's, I digress. But we could all at one point, sinner, it's in my nature. But the Bible tells us something different if we're in Christ Jesus. Because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, it is a state in which we once walked. If you are in Christ Jesus. Look what it says in verse 2. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in which you once walked. Walked. Peripateo means to live, behave, to conduct one's life. We know that we should know that word very well by now. In our past sinful lives, in our past natures, We were followers. We followed the world and the devil. That's what the scripture tells us. How many of you have children, have told your children, do not be a follower. Don't follow the crowd. Don't go along with what everybody's doing. You stand and be different. That's hard, is it? Stand against homosexuality today. Stand against transgenderism today. Find out what's going to happen. We already know. The world will come for you. And so it's easier just to say, ah, you know what, I'm not going to get involved, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to be quiet, I'll go with the flow. We don't hate anybody, but we also don't affirm what God does not affirm. God tells us there is one person and one person only to follow, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in our sinful nature, remember, Paul's reminding them, you saw salvation from God's perspective. Now I'm showing it from your perspective. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, and you were a follower. Look at what it says. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The word course For those who will be visiting or new today, we go over a lot of words in Scripture because we believe God's Word matters. Those words matter. We need to know what those words mean. The word course, aeon, has many different meanings in Scripture. In Hebrews, it means ages, history. Here, it means world system, practices and standards of those without God. We followed the course of the world. In our unregenerate state, the Bible tells us we could produce no moral good as God requires. Look what it says in Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Again, in the Greek language, no, no, not one is the most extreme way that Paul can get the point across of saying, no, 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 no. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, does that sound like America today? Absolutely, it does. Why? Because the Bible is correct. It's universal. That is every society in the world today outside of Jesus Christ. Ian Hamilton states it this way in his commentary. Our lives are dominated by a lifestyle that has an earthly horizon. I love that. We're only looking forward. We're not looking up. We're not looking at the vertical. We're only looking at the horizontal. 
Well, it gets worse. We not only follow the world, we also followed Satan. Look at what it says. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedience. No, you probably did not openly worship Satan. You probably didn't go to Hotel California. But if you followed the course of the world, you are a follower of Satan, the Bible says. If you are following the course of this world, the Bible tells us that you are a follower of Satan himself. We should not discard who Satan is. We should not discard spiritual warfare in the scriptures. It is real. It is powerful. We don't ever want to dabble within the the spiritual realm of which we should not. Horoscopes, Ouija board, things like that, they're not innocent. They may seem innocent, but they open up a gateway into your soul of which there may be no return. What spiritual things should we dabble in? Not even dabble in, study and give ourselves to? The understanding of God's word. The spirit of Satan prevails in this world. The Bible tells us it is a spirit that is characteristic of those who disobey God. Look at what it says again. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We need to be clear about who Satan is. He is not Jesus' brother. He is not equal to Jesus in power. He's just good and bad. The devil, Satan, has rule over this world by the authority of Jesus Christ. He is under God. He does what God says he can do. Really? Let's go to the story of Job again. In order for Satan to even act, he had to approach God and ask God for permission. And God lays out the boundaries for him. Yes, God has given him dominion over this world, but we should not think that he runs the... No, God runs the show. What happens in this world is by the divine decree of God. God is the ultimate rule of this world. I like how the late James Boyce explains this passage. He says, this tells us how the devil enslaves men and women. It is not that he is personally present. None of us can say, well, the devil is attacking me. Really? That's what I usually say. Really? The devil's attacking you. You are so spiritually astute and so far along in your spirituality that you now have garnered the attention of Satan himself. No, you haven't. I haven't. You haven't. Billy Graham probably did. He is only one creature and can only be present in one place at one time. We need to remember that. Jesus is omnipresent. It is rather through the evil spirit or the prevailing attitude or the outlook present in this world that he rules. He rules us through ideology. I bow to it, I follow it, and I just run with it. How many of us We're born in a house in which there was a particular political ideology. More than likely, you went that way. Never really studied it, never really considered it. Just, well, that's what I grew up with. That's the way I went. You grow up in the course of this world. What do you do? You just go to course of the world. The only hope of escape from Satan and his fiery darts is... Paul calls them later in chapter 6 of Ephesians, are the Scriptures. The Scriptures. Paul, in writing to Timothy, tells Timothy to correct his opponents so that they may escape the devil. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy 2.26. He tells them, correct your opponents... And he says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do 
His will. What's the will of the devil? That we would follow the course of this world. We just buy into the, to the prevailing winds of, of change and feeling and everything else and just buy into it and say, oh yeah, it's okay. That we would compromise say, well, you know, really, God's word's kind of... It's kind of stuffy, isn't it? It's kind of archaic. Really? Women can't be pastors? Really? God really doesn't? You know, marriage is marriage and love is love. And, and, and the church begins to compromise. The greatest enemy to the church is the church itself. From within the church will rise ravenous wolves, as Paul says in, in Acts 19, to the church in Ephesus. As Peter says, bringing in secretly heresies. We need to always be on guard as to the truth of God's word. Not willing to compromise on it one little bit, no matter what the cost may be. Even if it is our own lives. And scripture is clear that it may come to that in our lifetime. How much do we really believe this book? Remember what Paul said? He said, you once lived. (laughs) Once lived in a way that followed the course of this world, followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's how we once lived if we are in Christ Jesus. What amazing grace is ours if we are in Christ Jesus. If you are truly in Christ Jesus today, that's how you once lived You once followed your passions and were carrying out the desires of your body and mind. If it felt good, I did it. If I thought about it, I pursued it. We were, as the eagles have correctly stated, prisoners of our own devices. Look at what it says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The result of living for ourselves, the result of anybody living just for themselves, is that they are objects of God's just wrath. Look at what it says among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The worst thing that could happen to any human being, and as we've said many times, horrible things happen to human beings. Humans do horrible things to other humans. But the worst thing, because it's eternal, It has no end to it. Therefore, it is the worst thing is for somebody to be under the wrath of God. Wrath, I like the way John Stott defines it. Wrath is the word orge. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. I love that definition. He'll go later on in his commentary to say that God's wrath is entirely predictable. God's wrath is entirely predictable. God is not capricious. God doesn't have any knee-jerk reactions. He is settled and he is resolved in his wrath. God does not, nor can he tolerate sin, and he has promised that he will deal with it. When we follow the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, we were objects of God's wrath. 
by our nature. It was in us to be disobedient to God, to not care about God. As Romans 1 says, we suppress the truth, even though nature clearly tells us. We clearly see. Look at your hand. There's a God. You are not an accident. We take that and we suppress it. We say there is no God. I am God. I am the master of my own ship. The the, the horrific poem Invictus. I am the master of my own fate. No, you're not. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. The judgment of God. We were totally depraved in our nature. Total depravity is what we call it. And what some would call Calvinism. It's not... It's what the Bible teaches. It didn't even come from Calvin anyways. It came from the canons of Dort before Calvin. Again, John Stott is a great help to us. He says, For the biblical doctrine of total depravity means neither that all humans are equally depraved, nor that nobody is capable of any good, but rather that no part of any human person Mind, emotions, conscious, will, etc., has remained untainted by the fall. Every single part of us has been tainted by the fall, by Adam's sin. Our condition was utterly hopeless. We were rightly under the just wrath of God with no hope of rescue unless God stepped in. God did step in. And those who are in Christ Jesus have seen the resurrection power of God towards them. They know who God is because God has made Himself known to them. And now we see who God is. Verse 4. But God. But God. Go back in our archives. How many years ago, sir? Years, right? Years. Pastor John preached on this. But God. You once walked. You would still be walking. But God. But God. But God reminds me. When I see the phrase, it reminds me of what the psalmist says in 124. If the Lord had not been on our side. If the Lord had not been on our side. Who is God that it mattered that He intervened? What words are able to define who God is? Thankfully, God defines Himself for us. Thankfully, we can know that God's mercy and God's wrath live in perfect harmony because of who God is. Let's go back to our favorite. We haven't read it in quite a while. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is who God is. This is the only place in Scripture, the first place in Scripture, I should say, where God gives a sermon about Himself. Of all the sermons that have ever been preached, this is the greatest. The Lord passed before Him, that is Moses, and proclaimed. The Lord proclaimed about Himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What were you dead in? Your transgression and sins. But God forgives transgression and sins and iniquity. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? That God's going to punish future generations for a father's sins? And no, it just means that the children follow the course of the father, the prince of the power of this world. And that's why we talk about generational curses and breaking them in Christ Jesus. Again, verse 4. But God. Who is God? He is a being Rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. 
And I absolutely love what Ian Hamilton says about this. He says, mercy is not an arbitrary attribute of God. He is merciful. He is a merciful and a gracious God. He never needs to be persuaded. Oh, I love that. He never needs to be persuaded. Oh, God, please. Oh, God, please, please, please. No, God is a merciful God to His children. But just as God's wrath is entirely predictable, so is God's mercy. God's mercy is entirely predictable. Right? I want to tell someone, say, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this. I want to go and do this. And you tell them, God's word says not to do that. They continue in it. It only leads to one thing, the wrath of God. I want to obey God. I want to honor God. It only leads to the mercy of God. It's entirely predictable. But God's mercy is not something to be taken for granted. Doesn't the world depend on God's mercy? Something tragic happens. Where was God? Why didn't, isn't God a good God? Isn't God a merciful God? Shouldn't He have done something about this? We forget what the Scriptures tell us. That God's mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. Or, you, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Are you able to hear the word of God today? That is God's kindness to you. Reject God's kindness. Simply means that you are now accepting God's wrath. God is rich in mercy. God's mercy has no end to it. And God is merciful to us. He's merciful to His children because He loves His children. Look at what it says again in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. You know what? Love produces mercy. Love produces mercy. If you are in Christ Jesus... It is because God is merciful to you, because He loved you before the world was ever created. God loved you before the foundation of the world. Let's go back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. When did God... Go back in your mind. When did God display to you His love and His mercy? When was the time in which you knew the love and the mercy of God? Verse 5 tells us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, when you were dead and unable to save yourself, God's mercy came to you. God's love was extended to you. And He allowed you, as it were, to hear the words, Lazarus, come forth. Put your name there. God calling your name. Come forth. And you came out of that grave, as the song says. Matter of fact, I think the song says, I ran out of that grave. Because the compelling call of Christ was so great, I had no choice but to run to His merciful, loving arms. As Romans tells us in Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Being dead in our sins and trespasses and following the course of this world and the devil, we were unable to choose God. We were hostile in body and in mind to God. That's what Romans tells us, Romans 8, 7, 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were dead in sin and trespasses, unable to reach out to God, unable to obey God. We were under the just wrath of God, but God who loved us with a great love did an amazing thing. 
He let us know who He is and what it is that He has done. What God did in His love and mercy to us who were dead in our sins and trespasses. What did God do? Look at again, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It's almost like Paul is writing, and he's just got to stop and go, by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The words of Scripture matter. You all know me by now. I am by no means an English major. I can't even speak well. For, write, forget it. You don't even want to see how I write. But the verb tenses matter. Made alive, raised up, seated us, are all in the, what is called the aorist tense. It means it's a completed past action. It was done before the foundation of the world and will find its final fulfillment at the resurrection of all people when Christ returns and He brings us to Himself. Of course, these two things correspond to Christ's resurrection and Christ's position. The question is, why did God do it? God didn't need you. God didn't need me. You think, you know, Jerry, you complete me. God was saying that? No, no. It's the other way around. God, you complete me. Why did God save us? Why was God rich in mercy? Why did He have great love towards us? Why did He make us alive together in Christ Jesus? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his graces and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Where are you and I positionally right now? We're in heaven with Christ. We are seated in the heavenly realms. That's what it says. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But we're in the already not yet. I'm already in heaven, but I'm not yet in heaven. And one day, Christ is going to return. And the tension of the already and the not yet will become the now. Will become the now. This is the hope of God in Christ for us. It is what causes His children to persevere to the end. We see, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, we see dimly right now. But when Christ returns, we'll see Him fully. One day we will physically behold the glory of God in heaven. And God has been progressively revealing Himself to us. And one day He will pull back the curtain, as it were. And we're not going to see a little guy speaking into a microphone like in the Wizard of Oz. We're going to see the glory of God. We'll pull back the curtain, as it were, and we will see the immeasurable riches of His kindness and His grace towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what God does for His adopted children. His glorious inheritance. Because we are unable to save ourselves, it is purely by the grace of God. It is a, it's God's gracious gift to His children. It is God's gracious gift to us so that we have no room to boast about our relationship with God. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you probably thought I'm going to go one direction, but I'm going to surprise you all, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gracious gift of God in Christ Jesus leaves no room for someone to claim that they are a self-made man. God hates pride. Pride does not bring about the mercy of God. It produces its own fruit, the wrath of God. We cannot say in any way that I saved myself. We must fall on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. 
And when we fall on the mercy of God, remember what Ian Hamilton told us. God does not need to be persuaded. You come to him in, in, in brokenness. God says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. There'll never be a stiff arm if we come mercifully and broken before our Heavenly Father. There will never be a stiff arm. We don't need to persuade God why we need to be saved. He already knows we need to be saved. He knows all about our past. He knows all about our present. And He knows all about our future. But the question is, do we really know that we need God's mercy? It's not that I received it once. I need it every day. Jesus tells a story of two men going to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the highest religious leader, and one a tax collector, the most hated of society. You remember the story. Was it fictional? We don't know. Maybe Jesus observed it. But the Pharisee who's standing there praying says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Matter of fact, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy right over there, that tax collector. Look at him, God. You see him, God? I thank you I'm not like him. Jesus says, but that tax collector stood there with his head down, could not even look up into heaven, just beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who went away justified? The one who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. God does not need to be persuaded. If God had not marked you out before the foundation of the world, you would never be able to respond to the gospel call, you would still be under the just wrath of God. But God in His great mercy loved you and marked you out for salvation if you are in Christ Jesus. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which He loved us. All who are truly God's children are only God's children because of God's mercy and kindness towards them in Christ Jesus. God's mercy in Christ Jesus. I love the song. that we sang this morning. Jesus said, when I am lost, He will follow me. He will find me. And on that cross, He proved to me that Jesus will find me. It is only because of God's mercy and kindness in you that you are in Christ Jesus. God in His mercy saved you for a purpose. Saved me for a purpose. And it is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So who are we now? What were we? Dead in our sins and trespasses. What did God do? Made us alive in Christ Jesus. Who are we now? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Famous verse, we know it all. What do we always say? One of the greatest dangers is to be familiar. Oh, I know that already. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I can't learn anything more about that. Ah, oh, yeah, come on, that's just no problem. The word workmanship is poema. It means what has been made. It's the same word used for poem in Greek. God is writing out a poem in your life. God made you in Christ Jesus to be His masterpiece. The masterpiece that shows who you are in Christ Jesus. That we exhibit the character of God. Right? If you were to go see it, I've never seen it with my own eyes. I've only seen it on TV. If you were to go see David or the Sistine Chapel, who do you think of? You think Michelangelo. This guy was a genius. When people see us, how often to our shame do they not see who they should see? Do they see Jesus Christ? 
For we're God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared in order that we should walk in Him. That is not necessarily your vocation. Don't look at it that way. God will direct you there too. But God's primary concern in saving children, His children, is that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. So what should God's workmanship look like? Well, let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. This is what should characterize our life, and how often, to my shame, it doesn't. I can't speak for you, but I would imagine you'd say the same thing. When people look at you, do they see this? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What did we once follow in this world? The passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, prideful, proud. I have achieved in love. I have achieved in mercy. I have achieved in kindness. No, you haven't. Just by saying that, you haven't. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As the children of God, as the church, it is our obligation under God to help each other become what God has called us to be. We cannot live distant from each other. We must be involved in each other's lives. We must give each other the freedom to say, hey, you honoring God? Is this how God wants you to be? We must give ourselves that freedom. And when somebody calls us out, it's hard for me. My family's here, they know. My wife calls me out all the time, and rightfully so. I don't like it, but I need to hear it because I'm God's workmanship. But the question I would leave with you today is who are you following? If you're here today and you say, you know what, I've been following the course of this world and I'm done. I want to follow Jesus. It's very simple. Simply cry out to God for mercy. Right where you are right now. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God does not need to be persuaded. And please come see myself. Come see Pastor Len, Pastor John. Ask anybody. We will come alongside you. We will walk the journey of being conformed to the image of Christ with you, understand that we are on the same journey. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you are no longer under the wrath of God. But you're under the mercy and the love of God. And one day, you will see the Lord face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that well, Lord, I pray that you do what you promised in your word you would do, that when your word goes forth, it would not come back void. I pray, Lord God, for everybody in this room. I pray that we were either encouraged, I pray that we would be convicted, and that we would move forward in those things, moving ever more to you, that your goodness, your kindness, and your love, and your mercy would draw us ever closer. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in the song.
Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No one else can satisfy, I should come to him. Jesus said if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength, I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful, he will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and said that if I fear I should come to him no one else can be my shield I should come to him for the Lord is good and faithful he will keep us day and we can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. Showed me on that cross, he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful, he will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and for the Lord is good and faithful, He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind, Jesus strong and kind. Amen. God bless you all.